Life is better with community. This morning we are continuing our series uh, that we started about, uh, well, it's been 11 weeks ago now, but we are uh, in our ninth, uh, rather, I'm sorry, our eighth week this morning. And we started this series uh, to begin uh, our journey together with I as your pastor and uh, the, the uh, direction that God is going to lead our church as we continue a second 100 years in Gunnison. And so in this series, Essentials, we were, we're just looking to find out what are the things, the barometers by which we will measure uh, our missional effectiveness, the things that we're going to say yes to, the things that we're going to say no to. And so we started, um, we, we took uh, Palm Sunday off and we took Easter off. And in the opening weeks of this series, uh, we talked about uh, the very first message, just by way of recap, uh, is that Jesus is the foundation, not only of the Christian life, but the cornerstone of the church. Uh, And uh, apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so Jesus will always be uh, our focus. Week two, we talked about uh, how the word of God must be the weightiest influence in our church. Uh, It should be the weightiest influence in your own life. Uh, The newspaper pales in comparison. Your sphere of influence and people's opinions uh, should come way beneath uh, the word of God. And so we will be devoted to preaching the scriptures and we will guide our church by that. Uh, week number three, we kind of expanded on that to talk about the importance of a sound biblical theology, that is, theology proper. We need to know who God is uh, in total, everything that he's revealed about himself. So he's loving, yes, but he's also just and holy. And so we want to have a, an expanding understanding of our God, which also deepens our own understanding of our need for him. Week number four, we talked about the importance of being gospel-centered. Apart from the gospel, our lives cannot be changed. We can't overcome sin. And so there's this call in the Christian life to continue to come back to the foot of the cross, repenting and believing again that Jesus is our only hope. And if that's true in the Christian life, if we should be gospel-centered Christians, then we must be a gospel-driven church because that's all that we have to offer. We're not looking to provide a religious smorgasbord. We're going to make much of Jesus and lead people to the cross. And then the next week we talked about what it means to have a converted life. Uh, and it's this idea of an ever-changing, uh, ever, ever-growing spiritually. Uh, that as Jesus has redeemed us, it's not just about having a ticket to uh, heaven and eternity. Uh, it's also about this process whereby God is growing us up, sanctifying us to look more like Jesus. Then two, uh, three weeks ago, we talked about the mission of reaching people, that that's what God has given us to do. And so we're going to uh, reach those who live in our community. We want to be involved in things uh, around this area and then to the uttermost reaches to make Jesus known. And then uh, right before Palm Sunday, we talked about a commitment uh, to the body of Christ. That is the idea of church membership, uh, which uh, we will be unrolling uh, later in the year uh, when that is developed. And that brings us up to today. This whole series was born out of this idea that Jesus said in Matthew sixteen 18, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus envisioned a church that would be strong and getting stronger that would be loving and getting even more loving, that would be focused and unified, that would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, reaching those who are yet estranged to the Father. So the question that we have to ask between this bold vision that Jesus has for his church where he plants it just outside the gates of hell to accomplish his purposes, what, what does, how does a dispirited, maybe disunified church become this kind of church, a victorious overcoming a threat uh, to the demonic, to the adversaries of God's work in the world. How do we become that church? So in this series, we've been talking about 
the essential link uh, between uh, Jesus' offer to you and I as individuals to live abundant life uh, and then that of a healthy church. And this is a reciprocal link. Uh, we are only as strong as the individual member in the church. And so we all have to chase after Jesus to live the abundant life. And as we do that, then our church will be growing healthy. And so it matters very much what you experience in your walk with God. It matters very much what, uh, what we uh, chase after as a church. We don't anyone, want anyone being drawn here uh, by the Lord that we don't do the right thing by them. So if you're here this morning, we care about your journey with Jesus Christ. And we want to we live in such a way uh, as individuals and as a church that abundant life is available to anyone who wants it in Jesus and we become, as a virtue of that, we become a healthy church. So this morning, we continue. For the next two weeks, we're going to talk then about uh, how do you and I go about experiencing abundant life? What's the, what's the mechanism by which you and I can be guaranteed that God will work into us abundant living? And then next weekend, we're going to talk about having a personal vision uh, for spiritual formation. Romans chapter 12 Uh, Verses 1 and 2 are are some of my uh, life verses. And in those verses, Paul says, uh, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And and by saying that, Paul is alerting us to the idea that it's it's extremely uh, possible that you and I could just go with the flow of the world around us and in so doing become conformed to the way people think. Not just outside the church. Notice he didn't say, uh, Be transformed to the church. He's saying, don't be conformed to to worldliness, to religion, to what man thinks. Instead, become transformed. And so we want to acknowledge this morning that it's entirely possible for you and I to go to church for a lifetime of Sundays and yet never be transformed. That we could be religious, but in, in all reality, live Monday through Saturday like the rest of the world around us. So if that's not going to happen, if our desire is to not be conformed, but rather to be transformed, uh, then we have to acknowledge the reality that you and I uh, oftentimes drift from what it is that God wants. Now, our culture, in our culture, people are plagued with the idea of loneliness. Americans are, uh, by and large, suffering from being alone, not isolated altogether from human contact but absent the kind of life connections that add vibrancy and meaning to life. Uh, Pollster George Gallup uh, wrote as a result of studies uh, in the West that Americans are the loneliest people in the world. Author Laura Papano in her book, The Connection Gap, Why Americans Feel So Alone, attempted to uncover our culture's numbing sense of disconnect. She holds that our consumer mentality is at the heart of the connection gap. This is what she wrote. We short-circuit the very things that deepen a sense of belonging and interdependence. In a culture enamored of control, money frees us from needing others. Many people would rather pay someone to do something for them than to have someone else do it as a service for free. But the cost of this choice, she writes, is more than the professional's fee. Uncounted for is the loss of connection. Philip Zimbardo wrote in his book, The Age of Indifference, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. It has been shown to be a central agent in the etiology 
of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, mass murder, and wide variety of disease states. And as we discover from the pages of Scripture, this is not at all what God intended. In Genesis chapter 2, in fact, at the very beginning, when God has Adam walk through the process of naming all of creation, he then it slowly starts to sink in on Adam that there's no one like him. And when he's done, the Scripture says he realizes he's alone. And God says for the first time, it is not good. And so God creates human community because we need other people. And in a culture that is so taken with entertainment and possessions, we buy into this idea that stuff will fulfill us and we really don't have, we're really just garage door dwellers. We pull into our house and hardly ever interact with our neighbors. God desires for us something else. So this morning we're going to talk about biblical community and I'd like to start with this thought. Number one, in Christ, God has formed us to be part of his people and he has fitted us for the pursuit of biblical community. Now, there are a lot of things that you can do in relationship. You can play a round of golf. You could go out to Hartman Rocks and ride bikes together. You can sit at a restaurant and have a nice meal. But the scriptures consistently refer to God's uh, family as a household of faith. And the idea of a household within the house, the, 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 the one metaphor that stands out not only as meaningful for a family, but also for uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ is the idea of a table. Uh, a table represents that place where we gather in a circle and we interact face-to-face with one another. We share our lives with one another. Uh, we share our heartaches. We share our victories. We share our defeats. And so this morning, when we think about biblical community, I want you to think about the idea of gathering around a table. Because as important as this time is, Hebrew says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. There's much that we do in here at this particular time that's extremely important. We worship our God, the most important thing we can do. Uh, in addition to that, the Word of God is faithfully preached, and we have an obligation to that. So what we do here on a Sunday morning, we contribute to God's work in the world, is very important. But there are some things that cannot be accomplished in this setting. Disciples cannot be made in mass. Disciples cannot be made from a stage. And so that, that argues for this idea that God is connecting people so that they can share their lives together. And in the process of that biblical community, we become more like Christ. Uh, hopefully you walk away from our service and you feel spiritually challenged, you feel like God speaks to you, but the reality is there are some things in your life that will not be accomplished while you're staring at the back of someone's head. That's the downside to church. And so if we are to, if we are to become all that God intends us to be, if we're to be living abundant life and if we're to be a healthy church, then we must pursue biblical communion. And what we find in Scripture is not only has Jesus made us part of his people, He's fitted us for the pursuit of biblical community. And that's what I hope to uncover this morning. So in John chapter 13, John chapter 13, we just dealt with this a couple of weeks ago, but in that beautiful passage, Jesus is preparing for his final week and retires to an upper room in Jerusalem with his small group, with his disciples. And in that setting, uh, we see Jesus' uh, idea about community. Uh, We see a number of things happen. Let me just summarize them, read a few verses, and then we'll move on. First of all, we see in the upper room that love uh, and devotion are being demonstrated. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So there was in this setting, it was different than in the crowd. 
When Jesus gathered the 13, even with Judas in the room, this love and devotion was shared. There was intimacy and relationship. That doesn't happen in this setting, at least not to the degree that you and I need it. Second, we also see in the upper room that lives were being shared. Verse 2 says that they were, that they were having supper together. They were eating together. Good things happen uh, when you break bread. Third, uh, relationships were authentic. Jesus gets up, disrobes, takes a towel and a wash basin, basin, and then begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And you remember, Peter is resistant. He doesn't want the Lord to wash his feet. And, and Jesus says to him, unless, unless I do this, you have no part with me. That there's, there's this intimate uh, uh, exchange of life that's required, that biblical community fosters, that doesn't happen in a setting like this. Fourth, spiritual growth was taking place. Verse 12 when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand? You see, I hope each week as I pray and I study and I prepare and as someone stands and, and, and proclaims God's word, we hope that the Spirit you know, closes the gap between my mouth and your ears, uh, more importantly, your heart. But in a, in a smaller setting where there's relationship, it's, it's the opportunity to say, do you get that? Does that make sense to you? And we get to wrestle with truth. That's what Jesus is modeling. Finally, ministry was happening. It was being modeled and multiplied. Verses 13 through 17, Jesus says, I've set an example for you. It wasn't so much about foot washing, although foot washing has been practiced as just a a show of of, of Christ-likeness and humility. It's more about do we get that Jesus was calling us to serve other people. And so the question we need to ask each other is, apart from biblical community, who are we serving? Now, there's a lot of things that happen on a Sunday morning that are important and they require human service, but it's not necessarily intimate. It's not necessarily born out of, of deep love and relationship, and this is what biblical community fosters. So in short, we find elevated uh, in this story an incredibly simple lesson that we need each other. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 34 to issue the mandatum novum, the new commandment, um, that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, It's the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what? It takes more, for those of you who are sitting close to someone, it takes more than sitting close to someone in a weekend service to love them as Christ loves us. It takes life, doing life together. That necessarily in our day means small groups. We call them at our church life groups. It's how we are setting out to accomplish biblical community. And you might say, well, I'm not really interested in another program. I like coming to church, and that's awesome, and we're certainly glad to have you, but I just don't have time for that. I'm trying to argue before you today that this is God's vision for your life and that apart from biblical community, there are some levels of Christian growth, some levels of victory that you will not achieve until you have engaged the pursuit of what is nearest God's heart, that his people would do life together. In fact, uh, early on in Exodus chapter 18, God goes on record about the importance of this. Moses is effectively the pastor of a million people. And every day Moses goes out to the tent of meeting and he waits for the people to line up longer, farther than he can see. And he sits there from early, from daybreak till the end of the day, just listening to people's concerns and their problems and trying to answer them and minister to them. A million people. Talk about pastor burnout. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, one of the only times in history where a father-in-law gives good counsel to his son-in-law, and I can say that because I am a father-in-law, Jethro comes to Moses and he says, what you're doing is not good. 
you're, what you're, you're going to burn out and God's work is going to suffer. Here's what you need to do. He tells him, you need to take good men, faithful men. You need to appoint captains over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so if you imagine a concentric circle, you'll see a series of circles where this huge move of God is getting smaller by organization. Appoint captains of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And then let the captain of ten take care of ten people. And if it's too big for the captain of ten, well, they can pass it up to the captain of fifty, the captain of a hundred, captain of a thousand. And then you'll only have to deal with those things that demand your attention. And what he tells him is that if you do this, you will be able to lead well over the long haul and God's people will be taken care of. Church, we're not a million people. I won't say yet. We're probably not going to be. We're going to be more than we are because that's what God's called us to. But if you're looking to me to take care of your soul, I'm going to let you down. It's just not possible. The average church in America is 75 people. You know why? Because that's about all one guy can handle. And even that he's not doing a good job at. My job is to make sure you eat well. Your job is to engage biblical community, to pursue Christ with some other people around you, and over time, be able to validate and the people in your life, you look more like Jesus, and they're going to say the same thing to you. And so what God started in Exodus, and Jesus continues in John chapter 13, we see early on in the book of Acts in the early church. Uh, And that leads us uh, to the second idea, that functioning biblical community is essential to the spiritual health of the individual Christ follower and also to the church family as a whole. Two simple reasons. You need other people to help you grow, and other people need you to help them grow. And you say, well, I'm no teacher. You don't have to be. You just have to be present. You be present. You learn how to listen. In fact, most often, ministry is about listening. Hand on the shoulder, maybe a prayer. It's not about your great wisdom. I learned that early on. One of the first assignments I had as a young pastor, my uh, boss, my pastor was out of town. I was a youth director. I didn't, even, I, didn't, I, wasn't even, I didn't even warrant the title pastor. I was so far in over my head. And uh, a lady who attended our church, her husband committed suicide. Unbeknownst to me, my dad knew it. He was in that town. He called me at 5 a.m. and said, son, so-and-so has taken his life. You need to get up and go over there. I was like, Dad, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. And my dad was an oil man, so he said, well, I don't know. I just know you're supposed to go. So I get up. I've already got ulcers in my mouth. Worked my way over there and discovered that in that time, it's more about your presence than it is anything you have to say. And, and, th- and this is a secret to biblical community. It's just recognizing the value that other people need me and I need other people. And then when we get together, we watch the Holy Spirit show up. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see what is the creedal text of biblical community. Here's what uh, Paul writes, or what Luke writes. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Now, a lot of what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 can happen in a weekend service, but there are some aspects of biblical community that just don't happen here. In addition to that, if we would be a witness, if we would be salt and light to our community, the more we get together in little clusters we call life groups around the city, the more we redeem people's homes to have a small group in their home, the more the city will see that we are different. See, right now, they look to this time. But if we meet regularly, if we value each other, the involvement of each other in our lives, then the more we meet, the more opportunity there is for those to recognize there's something different about us, that we're breaking with what plagues our culture. We're not alone. We're not lonely. We have brothers and sisters, and we're doing life together. So let me talk to you just briefly about the benefits of biblical community, things that can't happen here that happen in a life group. Number one, confession is possible. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, confess your sins to one another. There it is, bold print, black and white. It's not something that we do in this setting, but it is something that all of us need, a place where we can confess our sins, where we can tell people, hey, please pray for me. This is what I'm struggling with. Two reasons that we need to confess our sins to one another. One, because my sin is going to affect you. If it hasn't yet, it will. And I need to have the kind of relationship with Christ and you that I can say, you know, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. We need that. That leads to a a second idea that's born out of biblical community that forgiveness and healing become real. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I I can tell you that, uh, that cognitively, I knew when I trusted Christ, I trusted Christ early, went through sin struggles during adolescence into early adulthood, And cognitively, I I knew that God had forgiven me. I was raised uh, being taught the gospel. But there was a gap between my head and my heart. You know what drove home God's unconditional love for me? It was in my first year of marriage. I was desperate. Couldn't change myself. I was broken by my own sin. And I I just determined I I was never going to be anything more than what I was. And maybe I couldn't change that, but I would at least like to know that there was one person that I had pledged my life to that knew me really well. And so I woke my wife up at 11 o'clock one night in our first year of marriage, and I felt led of the Lord to do this. I confessed everything about myself. And I thought I would meet with ire, disappointment, shame, anger. Instead, I received unconditional love. I, I received assurance of forgiveness. You, you see, that's the kind of life-on-life that makes forgiveness uh, and healing become real. Sometimes we just need to hear it from another person. God forgives you. I forgive you. That happens in the context of a life group. doesn't happen very often here in a, in a wor- worship service. Number three, the Word of God gets applied. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to help each other grow in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says that you need to work to become a, a good steward of God's Word, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That happens in the context of a life group where we can wrestle with a verse 
We can talk about it. Uh, Paul Salmon's group, that I, I, I would hold their group up as an example of the, the, the very thing we're pursuing as a church. Just a couple of weeks ago, they, they talked about the subject of death, and it's a place where you can, you can deal with truth and you can wrestle together with things, making sure that we're all growing together in our understanding of God and what He has for us. Number four, uh, in a life group or biblical community, accountability is provided. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another person. If you're dull, if you don't feel, you know, very cutting edge as a Christ follower, you need to spend some time with another Christ follower. We have a way of sharpening one another in that way. The, the most important reason why we need biblical community is because you are your own worst enemy. Yeah, you have an enemy in the devil, Satan, but no one does more to undermine you than you. If you would overcome yourself, then hang out with God's people. Get involved in biblical community. The next benefit um, is that guidance of, the guidance of God gets revealed. Romans chapter 12 says that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, His good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, it's true that you can pursue kind of an understanding of God's direction in your life. You can even get counsel from a pastor, but no one uh, knows you better than those you're doing life with. No one knows your tendencies, your escape uh, mechanism. Uh, the best place to find out God's direction is for people who love you and know you and are invested in you. Can you throw it out there and say, listen, there's a church who's asking us if we want to come to Gunnison, Colorado. Please pray with us. We don't want to be there if the Holy Spirit's not in it. And so we gather with a number of small groups in the process of getting here just to say, please help us discern God's direction for our lives. Very grateful for it because long before we ever showed up here, we had a sense that of affirmation from everyone we had invested in and been loving on and doing life with, that this was God. And three months into it, we're convinced that it is. And that was born, that confidence is born out of biblical community. Uh, another reason is that love gets expressed. The expression of love and loyalty, we're not very adept at that, but small group, biblical community is a place where we can learn to grow in it. Gosh, 19 years ago, my wife was having our son, our fourth child, and she, uh, she contracted Bell's palsy during that delivery. And half of her face was paralyzed. It took a long time for it to improve as much as it did, has, has. And there was a lady in our small group named Missy at that time. And she just felt led of the Lord to, to be an encouragement to my wife, who we have very few pictures of my wife during that time. She would not permit it. It was very difficult for her. Led to a struggle with depression for a while. But in four months... Missy never ceased to give my wife some kind of print or gift encouragement for four months every day for four months. And my wife recalls that as just a reminder that God loves her, that he's not forgotten about her, that, that she's a treasure to him. And that happened because someone had a heart that we were doing life with just to be, to stand in the stead of Christ and minister love. Finally, Discipline is done best in life groups. Discipline is not something we like to hear in our culture. We Americans bristle at the, any, in the idea that anyone would tell us, having embraced rugged individualism, uh, that we require discipline. But discipline is what God's about. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, among those verses, it says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Discipline is 
very much what we're about at a church. This is part of uh, preaching as part of the discipline of the Christian life. We want to know what it is that God is calling us to. We want to hold each other accountable to it. And there are times in life when we may stray. And for our own good, we need some brothers and sisters who are invested in us, who love us, who can say, this is your call to better than this. You need to turn around. Matthew chapter 18 tells us that this process, if it's healthy, is relational. It begins uh, on a relational basis, and God forbid that it should happen. But if it does, we should all pray that there's someone vested in my life who would remind me that I've given my life to Christ, that I'm called to honor and glorify Him. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. These are among the benefits, the functions of biblical community. And that leads to a final thought. At Community Church, an important part of our missional mandate uh, is cultivating and connecting people to biblical community. Now, to accomplish that, a couple of things have to happen. Number one, we have to overcome some obstacles. Very quickly, the obstacles are perhaps many, but here are four. Number one, we have a fear of self-disclosure. Some of us want to stay at arm's length from other people just simply because we don't want to let them in. In fact, I grew up in the church where you put on your Sunday best and you pretended that everything was okay. Families could be falling apart all over the place, but as long as you had nice clothes on and you were smiling, everybody thought that it was okay. It's not. It's not. We need to be real. We need to get over a fear of self-disclosure so that we can share our lives and find help. Jesus issues this test For those of us who are his followers, my sheep know me and I know them. Intimacy, relationship is required and biblical community fosters that. Number two, a second obstacle is emotional ineptitude. Again, some of us are not very good, especially the men among us, are not very good at articulating Christ-like love in such a way that it buoys and encourages and, and affirms. But biblical community is a place where we can learn how to do that to share the love of Christ with one another. A third obstacle is pride. Some of us uh, are too proud to let other people serve us or to serve other people. But, But servanthood is at the core of what Christian community is all about. And Jesus Christ sets the example. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And perhaps the greatest obstacle is hurried carelessness. Hurried carelessness. Some of us have become so conformed to the culture around us that we simply don't have time for other people, for other believers. We don't have time for... Uh, the pursuit, the work of biblical community, but we desperately need it. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, stoop down and reach out. Take the time to help those who are overwhelmed, share their burdens, and so complete Christ's law. Richard Foster writes in his book, Celebration of the Discipline, this is so difficult for us, partly because we view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We come to feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. Everybody's got it figured out, and I'm still struggling. 
We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another with veiled lies and hypocrisy. You want to know something about community church? We're a bunch of messed up people, desperately in need of Jesus. There is a journey between justification and glorification called sanctification, and we, need, we desperately need each other in the process of battling our sin and overcoming it. It's three steps forward and then two steps back. But in the process of biblical community, we have the chance to exhort one another on, to speak truth and love, to pray for one another, and over time to watch as Christ is formed in us. And that leads to the second thought, that as a part of our missional mandate then, we have to be about cultivating, coaching, and connecting people to biblical community. If you take your weekend program right quick, That's the bulletin for some of you. I just want to call your attention to a couple of things. Uh, Number one, you'll see on that first page on the left, you'll see uh, a description of life groups, and you'll see a a number of uh, current opportunities that exist for you to get involved in life groups. Now, Now, some of these life groups are focused just on a study, but in the days ahead, what we want to do is we want to grow groups that are about all the functions of biblical community, where all the things we just talked about are happening Um, But if we're going to expand and make sure that people are coming along, getting connected to biblical community, then we have to do a good job of raising up leaders. In fact, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So at the bottom of that page, you'll recognize that I'm putting together a a new leader's dessert. I just want to have the opportunity to meet with some people who might have a heart to lead a group in our church, tell you a little bit about it. It's noncommittal. You get some dessert. You get to hear me talk a little bit more. And then we get to pray together about God's direction for your life. Because come fall, we need to launch a number of new groups. My wife and I will be leading one. We just need to have places where people can get connected to biblical community. So when our time is done this morning, and it almost is, you'll find a sign-up sheet in the lobby. And if you would be interested in coming to a dessert just to hear a little bit more about leading a group, then I would ask you to put your name on there. I'll follow up with you. Uh, We want to coach. We want to guide biblical community. So Chris one of his major ministry initiatives. He's coming alongside me, and one of the things he'll be championing is this idea of building biblical community, uh, taking care of leaders, uh, honoring them, ministering to them, and making sure groups are, are well taken care of. But we have to be, as part of our mission, we have to be about building biblical community outside of the time that we share here this morning. So if you would be interested, I'd ask you to sign up uh, as soon as our service is done. Psalm 133, verse 1 and 3 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the work that you began so long ago, a work of sharing yourself with your creation. God, you desire to redeem a people You've given us a place as a part of your family, and then you have fitted us for the pursuit of biblical community. We need to pursue it first because we need it. Second, because others need us in the process. So, Father, I pray today that uh, you would move in our hearts, that we would both be a church that is um, fostering biblical community and that we would consistently challenge people to be involved. I know from 28 years of experience the difference the vast difference between those who are connected to biblical community and those who are not. Those who are connected to biblical community receive a far greater care from brothers and sisters in Christ than those who are not from me as a pastor. So I pray, Father, that you would give us a vision as your people for 
uh, pursuing biblical community and that every person that you entrust to us would find a place to belong and to connect and in the process of that, that they would grow up in Christ to look more like you. God, we desire the abundant life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ and we desire to be a healthy church. Please lead us in that. Help us be found joining you in what you're doing. And we ask all of that today in Christ's name. Amen.